Uh, We are continuing in our look at the book of James. We are now into the fourth chapter, um, and so we have this week and then two more weeks. And so uh, it seems um, apropos that we will also end on race day, and so we'll be doing the checkered flag at that point, and and then we'll dive into something else over the summertime. But uh, today we're looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And so let me uh, uh, lead us as we hear these words from James. James says this. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives all the more grace, therefore. It says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against one another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let's pray. God, we give you praise for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the words, being able to hear how you are at work um, across the globe, across our country, uh, and right here nearby. We thank you for ministries like Straight Up and Shepherd and for all the different ways, Lord, in which we see you at work in our world. We pray, Lord, that on this day, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So it is Mother's Day, and so thinking about Mother's Day, uh, and uh, thinking about, um, if I can, I'm not a mother, obviously, but uh, it makes you think a lot about having children. And and one of the things that I've been uh, very intrigued by over the years are the things that you have to teach your children. I've probably said something like this before, but there are things that you just think would come naturally and that children would just know how to do, right? I, I, I think about that when it comes to, like, throwing a baseball or a softball, right? I always thought that, you know what, they just, they come out and they just know how to throw the ball, right? They should be able to just kind of throw a ball. Well, well, they don't always just know how to throw a ball. And of course, 
I didn't naturally just come out and was able to throw a ball either. But you just kind of assume. But then all of a sudden you realize like you have to kind of help them practice. What does it look like to take a step? Where, where exactly should their arm be? All those kinds of things. Uh, that's not the only throwing that you have to teach your children. Um, this is a little disgusting. But, but one of the things you've noticed is that you also have to teach your children how to be sick. How to throw Exactly. See, I didn't have to say it. But, but that's one of the things, right? You would think that children would just know, hey, you, you shouldn't do this all over yourself. Don't just sit there. Don't just lay there, right? But, but, but they don't, right? You have to actually teach them, no, this is, this is what you need to do. This is how you do this. This is where you do this, right? Just these kind of things that you just think would be innate. So there's a lot of things that mothers uh, uh, and fathers have to teach their children. That said, there are also many things that you don't have to teach your children. They just are it innately. One of those things that we have noticed with all four of our children, it probably started about the age of one, is that they can be sitting there and playing with a toy and they can be in absolute heaven. I mean, they could be having the time of their lives, be completely content. And then all of a sudden, if a sister or a friend or whomever walks in with another toy, just like that, they are no longer content, right? In a moment, all of a sudden, all they can think about is that they want the toy that the other person has. In one moment, they become discontent and disgruntled. It is remarkable. And we never had to teach them that. Right? We never had to sit down one day and say, here's what you do. Shaughnessy, if you're sitting there and you're playing with a toy and, and, and you're happy and, and, and Adelie walks in with another toy, here's what you do. You get really angry. And you start wanting, you don't want that cruddy toy you've been playing with. You start wanting that toy because it's much better. It's going to be much more fun. And so you demand that you have it. And if Adelie doesn't give it to her, you, then you go over and you try to grab it. And if she still doesn't give it to you, then you hit her. We, you may have had to teach your children that. We never had to teach our children that. They just knew it. Now that said... While we didn't have to teach them that, we could have. Because the reality, of course, is that, well, it's Mother's Day, so let me just include myself. Their dad could certainly teach them what it means to be envious or what it means to covet. If they watched me for a while, they would see at times how disgruntled that I would get that somebody else had something that I wanted. And while I might do it in a more discreet way, they would know, they could tell that all of a sudden daddy didn't seem to be nearly as happy now as this guy over here now seemed to be as he drove by in that nicer car or, or lived in that nicer house or had the, had the better lawn. Actually, I don't care about the lawn, but let's just say that. Now, the good news is, I always think it's good news to know that you're not alone. The good news is, this has been something that people have struggled with, coveting and being envious, for many, many years. This is not a new thing. We see it, of course, in James. James says, you want something, and you cannot obtain it. And so you engage in disputes and conflicts, and perhaps even murder, in order to get what someone else has. 
right? It's remarkable how much of our happiness tends to be based on other people's happiness and whether or not they have or don't have what it is that you want. I've said this before, research is pretty uh, straightforward on this, that a fair amount of people, when they log on to Facebook, are much happier than when they log off of Facebook. And I would say more times than not, the reason for that is because as they begin to look at others and compare their lives, they keep thinking, well, it seems like their life is better, right? And, and again, it's not like Facebook is the thing that started this. I, there, there's this quote by this, I, I, I like by this French uh, philosopher named Montesquieu. If you're good enough, you only have to have one name. And so this is by Montesquieu, and he writes this, if we only wanted to be happy, it would be easy, but we want to be happier than other people people, which is almost always difficult since we think them happier than they are. Right? So we are up against the sense that all of a sudden we are not happy unless we are happier than somebody else, which of course sets us up for a fault because we always think that other people are actually happier than what they truly are. And so we begin on this little hamster wheel, if you will, and just naturally, we are a people who want to compare and who are always wondering, are we winning? And if we don't think we are winning, then we oftentimes then become quite discontented and disgruntled. It has been this way probably at least since Adam and Eve, maybe, maybe Cain and Abel. And I think a part of the struggle and what makes our wanting what other people have so difficult is that it isn't just innate. It is also, it seems to me, in the air that we breathe, in the world around us. This is what James is saying. James says, he talks about envy, and then he says, don't be friends with the world. And, and that would seem to be kind of easy, except for the fact that I feel fairly convinced that most of us are unaware of how the world around us actually shapes us. This is something we talked about a couple of months ago. I think that followers of Jesus need to always be paying attention to the ways in which the, 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 the culture around us shapes us to be less like Jesus than what Jesus would desire the case to be. A few weeks ago, I was able to speak at our moms group uh, that we have here at ZPC on Friday mornings called Mops. And uh, and I talked a little bit about this, and I, I gave him this parable. It's a well-known parable. You, you, you probably have heard it before. It's about an older fish who was swimming, and, and as he's doing so, he greets two younger fish. This is not real, uh, by the way. And as he does so, uh, the older fish says uh, to the younger fish, uh, how's the water? And the younger fish don't say anything to him. They just keep swimming, and a few minutes later, one of the younger fish looks to the other and says, what's water? And what that parable is getting at is the reality that these two fish had no idea that they were swimming in anything at all. They were completely oblivious to the fact that they were surrounded by water and that it was shaping their very life. 
And I have a weird suspicion that there are many of us as followers of Jesus when it comes to things like coveting or things like envy who are unaware of the ways in which much of our world is based on wanting what other people have and never being content with what you have. Do we pay attention to the ways in which our culture around us shapes us and we may not even be aware of it? Right, the, the analogy that I gave at Mops and that I've given before uh, in some sense here is, is spring break. Right, Four years ago uh, when we moved here, um, we, uh, we, hadn't been, we got here in January of, of 2014 and we've probably been here a couple months. And right before the first spring break, Scott, Pastor Scott I think was the very first one to say this to me. He said, you know, spring break's coming and nobody's going to be here. And I thought, who cares? I had lived by that point for 40 years, and I don't think I ever went anywhere for spring break. Nor did I even have that much of a desire. When I was a kid, now part of this is because I lived by the beach, so maybe that's a part of it. But, uh, but I've lived in other places, the western suburbs of Chicago, uh, and it was never like that. And so he said, hey, you know, there's not going to be anyone in here. And I was like, I don't care, you know, as long as I'm here, it doesn't matter. So, so sure enough, he was right. You know, that very first spring break, there's literally like tumbleweed going across Michigan Road. And, and there was like nobody here. And I was like, huh. But it was all right, because I mean, for 40 years, I hadn't done anything for spring break. It was a big deal, no big deal. And so we just kind of went on, and then people came back, and they started talking about the places that they'd gone, the fun things they'd done and seen. And it's like, eh, all right. <laughs> then the second year comes along. And one of the things that we begin to notice are the questions and the way the question is being asked. Because the question was not, are you doing anything for spring break? The question was, where are you going? And all of a sudden, very subtly, an expectation began to change, right? The expectation was that you go. And so even though for 41 years now at that point, even though I had never really thought that much about going someplace, all of a sudden it was this sense of, well, no, you go someplace during spring break. And I thought, huh. And then, of course, you know, I started looking. I started getting to know more people, so I had more Facebook friends and People were having a good time. And while Zionsville's great, it was a little lonely. And so then the next year comes. Shaughnessy's in school, and so she's coming back, and she begins to tell us, hey, you know what? Our friends are going to Disney World. You know, our friends are doing this. Our friends are, yeah, thanks a lot. Our friends are doing this and doing that. And then you start thinking, and you're like, you know, I wouldn't mind going somewhere for spring break. And so you start thinking about that, and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, we should, maybe we should, you know, maybe we should do something. And then you, you begin to see it more and more. And so then, so then this year, you know, all of a sudden, right, I mean, we're like, oh, Easter, it's horribly timed. How can we get away? And all of a sudden, we begin this total shift, right? And, 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 and so hear me now, because I know some people are like, oh, uh, Jerry, Pastor Jerry said we shouldn't go anywhere for spring break. I'm not saying that. Look, we went away for two days to French Lick. Do not be envious, But what I am saying is that we, first of all, we need to pay attention to the way that our culture shapes us to where we think. I want you to know this. Not everyone goes places on spring break. In fact, the vast majority of the world do not, even America. But I also want you to know that there is a piece of it. I will speak only for me. That as I began to see that, there was a part of me that was like, well, I work as hard as he does. Why, why shouldn't I be able to go somewhere? 
You know, I mean, we, 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 you know, we, we, I mean, we make money. Can we, can we get, we should be able to, to do this. And why is that person able to, to go there? And we can't go there. And there is this sneaky way that all of a sudden the expectations and the fact that we thought we were as good as them, surely we should be able to go as well. All of that began to slowly work its way into our hearts. And I wonder, whoa, 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 whoa. Am I paying attention? Surely, to be able to go away on spring break is a gift. But as soon as we begin to think that we deserve it because they get to go, we need to check our own hearts and why it is that we do what we do. You see, the problem with envy, the problem with thinking that you want to be like others is something that happens innately and it, and it is shaped by the culture around us. Make no mistake about it. They're very similar things, though, to what James goes on to talk about in verse 11 and 12. If you skip down there where he begins to talk about uh, how we judge one another. Uh, another way to say it is how we slander one another. This is, a, this is another thing. Commentator, one commentator pointed this out. that It is so much a part of the waters in which we swim that to slander somebody else, we hardly even notice it at all anymore. It just almost comes naturally for us to talk negatively about others. I, I, I've always been struck by the Oscar Wilde quote because it probably speaks, if we're honest, to what many of us uh, think, which is what he says is, if you don't have anything good to say, come sit next to me. Because you see, most of us, we like to hear a good conversation about something negative about somebody else. And if we're really honest, we don't just like to hear it. We don't mind chipping something in from time to time as well. There's just something about it, right? There's something about it that makes it kind of fun to be able to do that. The ancient Israel uh, wisdom writers, uh, one by the name of Sirach, I think it was, uh, but others did it as well, talked about how slander is like a third tongue, they say. Because it kills. It kills the person saying it. It kills the person to whom it is being said. And it kills the person to whom it is being said about. See, the reality is that, that speaking ill of others, that slandering others, gossiping others in a negative way, it may seem like it's not that big of a deal. But the reality is that it is toxic. James gets to that. One of the realities, as Ben Witherington points out, one of the reasons why it is so toxic. Now, we would never say this out loud. We would never be so bold. But when you are talking negatively about somebody else, what you are really doing is saying, I am better than him or her. Now, how often would you go up to somebody and say, you know that person, I'm really quite a bit better than him. But when you begin to speak negatively about somebody else, that is actually, make no mistake about it, people, that is actually what you are doing. That is actually what I am doing. That is what we are doing. We are saying we are just a little bit better than that person. Or what about, this is what James says. James says that when you do so, you are judging that person. And there is only one judge. And guess who that is? 
Yeah, it's God. That's right. You know the right answer. But when we are slandering somebody, when we are speaking ill, you know what we're doing? We are becoming their judge. We are saying, I know everything about you, and I know exactly why it is that you do what you do, and I know everything about your life circumstance, and I am going to speak ill of you. Guess what? You do not know all of those things, and you are making yourself the judge. And then, of course, James brings this in by saying, and, and, and you know, basically, you're, you're not loving your neighbor. You see, Scott McKnight says you can't both slander your neighbor and love them at the same time. It just does not work. This is a a very pick-me-up passage, by the way, if you're curious. So the question then is, what do we do with that? I mean, if this is all the case then how do we stop doing that? Because if it is both innate and it is in the waters in which we are swimming and all of our culture is shaping us in that direction, how do we get out of that? And like good type A folks, like so many of us are, the assumption is we can work our way out of that. We'll be strong. We will will ourselves out. And I'm not sure that that's actually the best way. Because it's Mother's Day, I was thinking about my mom this week. Uh, I mean, I think about her every week, mom, if you're listening to this. But I was especially thinking about her this week. And my mom had a massive impact on me when I was growing up. And one of the ways, the most, the, the, the kind of the most powerful ways was when I was in high school. My high school, as I've said before, uh, it w- w- was not great. It was a very, very difficult time for me. And one of the great things was when I got to go home. And I would go home, and no matter what, no matter what my enemies at school had said, no matter what my friends at school had said, no matter what my test grade may have told me, when I got home, my mom was always the person to remind me of who I truly was. Mom was always the one to say, no, 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 Jerry. This is who you are. This is who I know you to be. And this is who you are going to be one day. Now, my mom also, there were times, right? I said this a few weeks ago when I I loved to look in the mirror a lot, right? I was a little bit too happy with myself. And my mom was the best one to humble me in those moments, right? To say, hey, quit staring at the mirror. Mom was always good at leading me to a confession as well, if need be. But like most moms, she was this remarkable encourager right I mean just no matter what was happening see what my what this time did what what, what my time with my mom did when I was in high school was it she created space just space to get away from the world that was around me from all those waters from all the pressures from all of those things and to be reminded by my mother who Jerry really was See, I think that image for me is, I think, a great tip as to exactly how it is that we begin to let go of what the world says and even what we say about coveting and about being envious or, being, or slandering, which is, which is this importance of beginning to create space. This is what James says, verse 8, James says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. 
See, I think what this is about is being able to make sure, not that you completely withdraw from the world, but that you have times when you are creating space for you to simply be with God, to get out of the world and what they say is important in order to genuinely just be with God. See, I don't think that we know how important creating space really is. One of the things that I've been doing a lot of lately is listening to podcasts about teenagers, especially teenage girls. Shaughnessy, our eldest, turns nine soon, which means we're getting close to the tween years, and then it's going to be the teenage years, and I am scared. But one of the fascinating things is to hear the struggles of our teenagers and then even into the millennials. One of the things that, that psychologists, not pastors speak, that psychologists and anthropologists and sociologists, they are noticing. They're noticing a rise of anxiety. They're noticing a rise of these things. And one of the reasons, that, one of the things they begin to talk about, right, especially when you think about my own analogy, is that there is now no more time to create space. Because, you see, it used to be when I was struggling at school, I could go home and I naturally had this space from all of them, right? I mean, I, I mean, most people didn't know where I lived. If they wanted to call me, they had to look it up in the white pages. Who's doing that? And, and even then, I could only be on the phone for like two or three minutes before mom was like, get off the phone. Someone might be calling us, right? There was this natural break, Kids these days, they do not have that break. And those pressures and those struggles that they are dealing with at home, and this is not just the truth for teenagers, this is the truth for all of us. All of a sudden now, they can look in the palm of their hand, in their living room, in their bedroom, even in their bathroom. No place is safe from feeling the pressure of the bullies or those who are encouraging you, or the questions of whether or not you're getting enough likes, or the question of whether or not people like you. All of those questions now, there is no space. Now they have it with them all of the time. In fact, one researcher, what she wrote this book, I think it's called I Gen or I Generation. I haven't yet read it. I read an article about it. That's all I have time to do right now because I'm too scared about these teenage kids. Said that in 2012, they noticed a, they noticed a dramatic increase in the anxiety of kids. And as she tried to wrestle with that, what she also ended up noticing was that this was when more than 50% of Americans, this was the year when more than 50% of Americans had got their smartphones. Now, my thing here is not to say that, that James is anti-iPhone, anti-phone, if you will. But my point is to say this, what used to be very informal, you would always just have space. There was always this created space away from the world around you. It is no longer there. And if we want to be able to understand how it is that we are being shaped by the world, and if we want to be able to be shaped more like Jesus, we better intentionally begin to create space at times between ourselves and the world around us and with God. We cannot get there if we just continue to always be on. We must figure out when our times when we can draw near to God and when God will draw near to us. You see, I know this may seem self-serving, but I'm going to say it anyways. I think that creating space, even on a Sunday morning, to gather around here so that we can be reminded. We can be reminded of who God is and who God is not. 
That we can be reminded of our call to love our neighbor so that in those moments when we are inclined towards being slanderous, inclined to saying something ill, we can at least have had some space of reflection and remembering who God says that we are and what we are called to do and not to do. I think when you read scripture, when you spend time in prayer, when you get outside perhaps and go for on a day like today to journey out into God's nature, not to say, hey, this is pretty, but to remember the generosity of God. One of the struggles that we have when it comes to coveting and envy is that we almost always, when we are doing that, we have forgotten how generous God is. I wish that I could hit pause in those moments when my children are fighting over a particular toy. Because if I could push pause, if we had a camera in there, and I could just hit the pause button, and I could say, can we scan left, please, and can we scan right? Guess what they are surrounded by? Toys. More toys than you could ever imagine. But in those moments of coveting or envy, the only thing that they can see is that one thing that they do not have, rather than seeing everything else that they have. In those moments, Jerry Deck, when you are looking at Facebook or whatever else it may be, and you are envious of that, in that moment, I have forgotten everything else that the Lord has provided me. This is not a zero-sum game. It is not if you are happy, I cannot be happy. We serve a generous God. I think that as James says, we need to confess. But I also think that after that confession, what we need to do is to figure out how can we create space? How can we create space? This week we have our faith in action and so... We said, well, what are some things that we can do? Well, you could clearly, the easy things are to do something like, I don't know, like get off of of social media just for a week. Just take a week's Sabbath, right? This all goes back to Sabbath, an ancient practice. Maybe this week what you can do is not get together with that one particular friend who you know every time that you get together, what he or she wants to do is talk about what's wrong with other people. You know who that is. And if you don't know who that is, there's a good, question, there's a good uh, a chance that it's you. And so, and maybe you have the courage. Maybe you have the courage with that friend to say, hey, you know what? I love you. This week we're not going to do that. This week let's talk about something else. Let's talk about what's good about other people. Boring. Let's try it. Or maybe it's about cutting off a show. Maybe it's, it's House Hunters and you want to cut that off because you can't help it. You watch it and you're like, oh, our kitchen's like two years old. Look how cool that one is. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it is just creating more space to just, to just quiet down the world around you. Whatever it is, here's my encouragement. Try it this week. And then just give us quick soul check and just ask In what ways, in what ways has my desire and my, my, what ways has my dis-ease and my discomfort that they or he or we or she, that they have that and I don't? Or in what ways has my deciding to not talk about or listen to the negative things that are being said about others? In what way? Are there ways in which 
because of that, I am now shaped more like Jesus than I was when I started the week. Sisters and brothers in Christ, these sins, these struggles, they are innate and they are in the world around us. But if, as James says, as we keep, not as James says, as we have said when it comes to James, that we want to be able to go to bed looking more like Jesus than when we woke up, and we want to be able to have the sun set with our community looking more like the kingdom of God than when the sun rose, then perhaps this week we can do that by simply deciding to create some space to remember who God is and how generous that God is, to remember that our happiness It's not dependent upon whether or not others are happy at all. Create some space. And in so doing, might we then be a people who look more and more like Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, we give you praise for this morning. For the opportunity to gather together. To have an honest conversation. Lord, none of us are immune. None of us. So I pray that you would help us. Help us to be a people who are aware, are aware of our struggles and who are willing and able to create space that we might then experience you more richly, that we might see others not as competitors, but as brothers and sisters of those who have been created in your image. It's in your name we pray. Amen.